Most of the podcasts that I've recorded are focused on wildlife one way or another, generally. But um, I'm conscious that the name of this blog is Wildlife and Adventure Photography because I like to uh, have some adventures as well. Often they involve wildlife, but not always. So I thought with this blog, I would just go through a bit of a how-to, really. If you're going away, so it doesn't have to be a wildlife trip. It could be some sort of adventure, but in my mind, <laughs> I'm thinking of something that you're not likely to do that often, or maybe it's something you would do often, but perhaps for most people listening, it might be a one-off event. So for me, that might be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or, or going to the wreck of the Titanic in, in a small submarine or flying a MiG-25 uh, at 80,000 feet, all that sort of stuff. So whatever it might be for you, I'm hoping this blog, uh, blog, this podcast even, will be a bit more relevant. And what I wanted to really focus on were some things you can do to get the most from your adventure photographically. And I think that's important because, you know, absolutely doing the adventure is really important and um, it can be really exciting. It can be quite frightening as well at times, um, given some of the adventures I've been on. We've certainly managed to uh, do both of those. But often there's a couple of things that happens. One is it tends to be over fairly quickly. Uh, it, it feels like, or to me anyway, often there's months of planning go into it and then all of a sudden it's over. It's over within a matter of days or at most a few weeks for, for most of the things I've done. And sometimes, so the other aspect of this is that sometimes we can't take it all in at the time. Depending on what we're doing, there might be a lot of things going on. We might be having to think pretty fast. And in the moment, we're doing what we need to do. So we don't get the full experience until afterwards when we start to look back on it and start to go through whatever we've been doing step by step. So there are definitely, um, say, stories when I was down on the Titanic, things that happened down there that happened pretty quickly. Uh, we responded to them, we carried on. But it's only later, and, and particularly with uh, what's happened recently, uh, given that I'm recording this in um, early July 2023, uh, and so the whole getting down to the Titanic thing has been um, something of a topic. So uh, a few people, or I've spoken to a few people about my experiences or been asked about them. So you kind of relive different parts of the adventure later on. And where photography comes in, it's a way of just recording in the moment what's going on. And it helps definitely when it comes to sharing that experience with other people. It might be friends or family or whoever it is. It might be um, a community that you're a part of. It might be a following that you have, whatever it is. But having the photographs is a great way of sharing that experience. And it does also help you to reconnect. And I've looked back on, on photographs from different things I've done. And some of the photographs are things that happened that I'd almost forgotten about and just seeing the photograph uh, was a, was a really good reminder. So that's really what's behind all of uh, these items that I'm going to go through. So let's just get stuck in. So the first thing, and you, I would imagine you would do this anyway. To me, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, before you go, you're going to be um, doing some planning. And as well as planning what you're going to take, what equipment you need, all of these other things, visas, um, maybe jabs, 
other things that I've spoken about in um, different podcasts and other um, events I've run where I've spoken about the kind of preparation that goes into certainly the sort of trips I do. But one of those is also to start thinking about the photographs. What are the photographs you want to come back with? What are the photographs that are possible? Maybe you don't know. So it's a great idea to start looking around, maybe do some uh, Google searches on uh, maybe whoever you're, if it's a tour or a trip, whoever is organizing that for you locally. If it's something you're doing on your own, just Google places or um, you know areas you're going to go through. But there's a lot of information out there. And another great source for me is Instagram. I, I love looking at uh, other people's photographs. There are some absolutely brilliant photographers on Instagram. And um, I always get ideas when I start looking at them. So that's the first part. The second part of the planning is also to think about what you want to do with these photographs at the end. So I've spoken about photo books before. And I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of photo books. I haven't used them a lot. Certainly in the days before digital photography, I, I would always be putting together photo albums so that people could look through. But I think the potential of photo books is that much greater because, first of all, they're an awful lot easier to, to produce. You can put in text, you can put in maps, you can put in a, put in a lot more um, supporting documentation than I ever did with my photo albums. And you can do that very easily. Plus, you can put them online so that people can buy them or you can buy have a, a, a short print run and share them with people. So the potential is much greater and also it's much, much easier to produce something like that. Alternatively, it might be a story you want to share over Instagram or some other social media platform, or it might be that you want to put a gallery together. So all of these things will determine the kind of photographs that you want. Do you want to uh, limit the photographs to a very small number, maybe a dozen, or do you want to have hundreds? Do you want to have link photographs that take the, whoever's looking at these photographs on the journey with you? So you're almost taking photographs at every step of the journey, even the relatively mundane parts. They will help to build up to the main event. So have a think about that. And then obviously that you've then got the type of photographs. So are you looking at landscapes? Are you looking at animals? Is it the architecture? Um, are you going to be doing candies? Are you going to be doing some street photography? Are you doing underwater shots? What is it going to be for you? And... Also, what are the conditions you're going to be in? So I'm going to talk about the kit in a moment, but you may not be able to use your regular photography gear where you're going. So underwater, if you don't do it regularly, is an obvious advantage, uh, sorry, example of that. So what do you need to do? Do you need to hire an underwater camera, buy a relatively cheap one? Um, do, do you get a casing for your existing camera? Um, do you stick your smartphone in a watertight bag? <laughs> there are lots of options. Um, I, my, my only recommendation is to get something that is from somebody who does these things professionally just to make sure that whatever you are protecting from being flooded uh, is um, well protected using kit that uh, is, is designed for purpose. So... Another thing is to think about how you're going to put together that final item, whatever it might be. So if you looked at a gallery, for example, if you're planning to do a gallery of photographs, maybe on social media, maybe on a, an online exhibition or even a physical exhibition, 
what do you need to think about then? Do you need to run themes about different parts of the adventure or of the trip? Maybe that's about shapes, black and white. Maybe it's colours. Maybe you have sections where you're, you have a dominant colour. Maybe say red is a theme through that section. So there, there's lots of ideas you can get. I, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here, but there's lots you can get, again, by looking at the web. You may have plenty of your own, but if you are short of ideas and you want to try something different, then um, have a look at what's on the web, see who's exhibiting, have a look at some photo books. You know, get a feel for what you like and what you think has impact and is the kind of thing you'd feel quite proud about if you were to uh, put it together yourself and present it to other people. Another outcome, or or, or maybe not the main outcome, but another thing you could produce from this work is calendar. Maybe you use it for family members. So if you're going with family or friends, uh, make sure that you have at least some photographs which include them and they can then feature one month, two months, whatever it is but you've got them as part of that unfolding story and it's shared with obviously a much wider audience using the medium of of a photo calendar. And people love to, in most cases anyway, like love to see themselves in those really unusual situations. I mean, even I do, and I hate having my photo taken, but I am pleased that I've got some um, in the submersed pool when we were going down to the Titanic um pictures me at the top of Kilimanjaro all that sort of stuff pictures me on my motorbike when I was riding around Australia so think about these kinds of things and then going beyond that so you've got your you know what what you've got what your end result is going to be you've got an idea of the kind of photographs you're going to be taking to suit that end product or end products And then start thinking about how do you achieve those particular results. Think about the lighting. Um, Does the time of day have a big bearing on those photographs? Uh, Certainly going back to wildlife, um, often a lot of animals aren't very active during the day. But if you're around at twilight, you're likely to see a lot more, even at night, if you can get night photographs. Now, one thing I will say is generally I never take a flash with me when I go away. And um, for wildlife photography, for sure. Um, that may not be the case for you, but um, do, just have a think about that, and I'll talk about the kit uh, later. Other things that might impact what you're doing is the traffic or the weather, what's going on locally. So if you listen to um, a podcast that I did with um, Case Tilburg at the beginning of um, 2023, in fact, it was the first uh, podcast of, uh, of this year, uh, one of the things he does, so if you didn't listen to that um, case, takes photographs of nudes in um, cities, basically. And what he does, he'll go out with the model in the afternoon, the day before, generally, and they'll be scouting out locations, looking at where she can put her clothes um, and all of that. But then what they'll do for the actual shoot, and they'll do some test shots just to see how they work. But the actual shoot itself happens very early in the morning, pretty much as soon as it starts getting light. When there's virtually nobody about, they're not going to get arrested, <laughs> all those sorts of things. But it's it's, a, it's an aspect of planning. Now, you may not be shooting naked people, but just the same, there might be certain times of day where there's something going on that you would really like to capture. It might be that there's nothing going on, uh, which if you're in a very busy city, uh, can be um, something to think about. And I even went to 
uh, one of the local villages near where I live. It's a bit of a tourist hotspot. But I just went out very early one Sunday morning and I was walking around photographing. It was a beautiful morning. It was um, February, so it was a bit cold, but not peak season. And somebody asked me when I posted the photographs how I managed to get those photographs with no people in them, because usually that place is very busy. So this is another thing to think about. And often pictures of places that are very well known, if you get them at an unusual time, they can be very compelling photographs. Okay, so the next thing is to research a destination. Now, maybe it's it's the destination that you know very well. And I've already spoken about Googling the destination to get ideas for photographs. But in that, you can also get other aspects of the place. So if it's somewhere where history plays a big role, um, what are the main historical sites? What else can you see or are you likely to see? There might be small details in buildings that a lot of people miss. Um, that there might be um, graphics on a wall that are very faded, but say refer to an old um, garage for cars a hundred years ago, and um, the, the style of writing and the style of marking out a business. So here in France, where I live, in a lot of places, those old designs, those old um, advertisements, really uh, have to be left alone because they're part of the the culture, part of the history. So one of the things that you can think about when you're at your destination and maybe put down a draft shoot list of just to remind you if, if you start getting more and more ideas, but what are the sort of things you can photograph that will give you a set of photographs that are perhaps different to what most people would take when they're in a particular in, in this particular place or doing this particular activity What are the kind of things you can think about? So think small, think details, as well as thinking big and landscapes and all that sort of thing. Um, The other thing to do is to maybe chat to other photographers who've been there. That might be people you know, or it might be someone who photographs that area regularly. And um, why not try connecting with them? A A lot of photographers are very happy to talk about what they do, and a lot of photographers are actually very generous with sharing their knowledge and giving tips and uh, little hints, and maybe they're things you hadn't thought of. So it's worth reaching out. The worst that can happen is that they say no or or they just don't respond. So there's nothing to be lost, really, by by reaching out to someone, particularly if you like their work, if, say, you've been following them on Instagram or you've found them on Instagram. um, It's always nice to make contact. Okay, and then once you get there, as I've said, scouting the location is a good idea, particularly if you want to shoot something at a particular time of day and you don't, and that maybe that opportunity doesn't last for very long. So I'm thinking of Case and his his ladies. Um, So it's a really good idea to scout out locations. Can you get the kind of shot you were thinking about? Are there alternatives? What happens if you change the format of the picture? So I'll talk about that in a moment. um, And also there might be other things around that you hadn't realised were there and that can make either contribute to uh, the photograph you've got in mind or be something in their own right. So scouting a location is just a great way to spend a little bit of time. When I scout, and I've done this um, a number of times actually, if I go out scouting, I normally just take a camera with me um, or even my phone and I'll just shoot off a load of pictures on my phone 
they give me ideas and I might jot down or, or even put a, a note on the phone of where I'm taking these pictures as well. And the, the, the nice thing about phone photographs these days is that um, uh, usually uh, you've got a GPS reading, so it will tell you where the photograph was taken. Now, just a word on that, you do need to be careful in some countries about using GPS on photographs. And also just be aware that with some countries, they don't like you taking photographs of government buildings, that sort of thing. It can be regarded as very impolite to take photographs of people without the permission. So in this researching phase, you, you do need to just be aware of local cultures and the rules locally. Uh, I think it's Switzerland where you're not allowed to film people in public. It's actually against the, the law. Whereas in other countries, you're fair game, you know, if you're out in the open. So just spend a little bit of time. Normally, it's not very hard to find out what the rules are, but do follow those rules, rules because you don't want to be offending people and you certainly don't want to get arrested or in, into uh, any trouble with the authorities when you're, uh, when you're visiting. Okay, um, now something I've spoken about a lot is uh, knowing your camera before you go away, and this is really important because when you're where you're going when you're having your adventure normally I mean to me by definition an adventure I'm there to have an experience of something and I want to be as fully in that experience as I can so although I want to be taking photographs I'm going to be doing that almost automatically I don't want to be thinking about the camera I don't want to be trying to work out or trying to remember how to do things so if wherever you're going if there's somewhere near you where you can go to a similar sort of location so if it's, um, say, architectural shots you're doing, then go to where you live and take photographs of the local architecture. Just try out ideas, try out different angles, um, different formats. It might be landscape, it might be portrait, it might be um, getting down very low to take a photograph. But try things out and just play around with your camera and see what works. And a good thing to explore, if you haven't already, is the different modes on the camera because you can go fully manual. Uh, I don't know many professional photographers who use manual unless they're in a studio usually they'll use one of the automatic modes it might be shutter priority it might be aperture priority but the thing about those modes is that they do some of the work for you so you can concentrate on uh, let's say depth of field and exposure with aperture priority and the camera will work out the rest for you you may not have a camera that does has those modes so you might have a, a less professional camera let's say but you might have other modes which might be sport uh, landscape portrait sunshine whatever they might be and if you've got them on your camera and you've not explored them or experimented with them then now the, now is the time to do it before you go away just play with them and see what effects they give you and then go to the kind of location that you're going to be going to if that's possible and Take some test shots, try some things out, take the same photograph using different modes. One of the things I love to do is to break the rules. So I'll take something that's designed for um, uh, shooting things very quickly and then I'll, I'll use them on a different kind of um, uh, subject. I'll just switch, or, or might be a stationary subject, for example. What does that give you in terms of texture, in terms of feel? What does it give you in terms of contrast, depth of feel, these kind of things? So... It's a great opportunity to explore your camera and you may find that 
you can get some really cool results that you hadn't realized were possible on the kit you own. And one of the nice things about that is that you might have been thinking about upgrading and there may not actually be a need to do that. And the reason I say that's usually a nice thing as much as I certainly love getting new stuff. But um, the thing is, it does save you a bit of money and that money can go towards your trip or while you're away or whatever it might be. So I definitely um, recommend you do that. Another thing to think about is backup equipment. So what do I mean by that? Well, do you need extra batteries? Are you going somewhere where it's very cold? So for example, when I was climbing Kilimanjaro, it did get pretty cold up there and I'd, I only had one battery in my camera uh, because I'd actually taken off the, uh, the unit that normally I had on the bottom, which uh, takes a second battery. But I did have a couple of batteries that I carried with me and I just carried them in my jacket um, in fact, close to my skin, so they kept fairly warm because when you're in cold conditions, it can reduce the effectiveness of the battery. So you might suddenly find that you can't get as many photographs of it or the performance begins to drop off. It may just be because it's cold, and if you've got a spare battery, even if it's just one, you can switch it in the cam- with the one in the camera, use your spare. And because that's already warm, that might work far better for you anyway. And just the act of warming up the, the your first battery might be all it needs to to make that last a few more hours without having to recharge it. So have a think about that. Memory cards, if you're going to be shooting a lot of photographs and um, you're likely to push the limits on the memory cards that you have. Now, I do have extra memory cards. I actually have two in the camera. And um, if I'm away somewhere, I'll, I'll actually save a raw uh, I generally save two rules actually to the two cards. So if I lose one card, I've still got the raw photograph. So I was shooting raw. I don't shoot in JPEG. Um, again, if you're only going to use the photographs on social media, JPEG's fine. But if you want to, if you might be trying to produce a full size print of the photograph at some point, or even in a decent quality photo book, it's probably better to have a uh, shoot in raw and then do your editing, cropping, anything else you're doing, and then do a final conversion to JPEG before you uh, submit it for printing. So think about um, spare cards if you need them. What else might you need? Um, I'll sometimes carry a spare body, but you may not have one. And um, happily, I've never needed to use one. Although when I... I was in one situation where I only had the one body with me and I started getting failures in the body because I had, excuse me, dust getting into the camera. So think about where you're going. If it's a dusty environment, think about ways you can protect the camera and the lens and just keep the dust off the camera as much as possible. So that might be just something else to um, take with you. Now, backing up your photos, uh, I always try and back them up. So usually when I travel, I've got a... Uh, a small laptop with me and I carry two small solid state drives they're physically small they're both one terabyte and what I do at the end of each day is to uh, or or usually at the end of each day depending on where I am if I'm out camping um, somewhere then I probably can't do it but um, if I'm back to base where I'm in a room I've got electricity um, I will back up what's on my camera onto the computer and then back up from there onto the two solid state drives. Now, the computer won't hold that much. Um, 
given that it's got a lot of other stuff on it anyway, including uh, Photoshop. I have a copy of Photoshop on my computer so I can um, do my editing while I'm on the move. But it does mean that I've got at least generally two or three backups or copies of the photograph. Um, with the SD cards and the um, flash card in the camera, I'll use them for acquisition. But if they start getting full, I'll make sure they're backed up and then I'll just wipe them if I don't have spares. And often I don't carry spares, so I just use what's in the camera. But those cards to me are simply for acquiring the photograph in the camera for other storage, whether it's temporary while I'm traveling or permanent storage, they'll go somewhere else. Now, if you've got access to um, Wi-Fi, of course, you can put them on the cloud somewhere. So you might have access to Google Drive, Dropbox, iCloud, wherever it might be. And that, again, is a great way of uh, storing a copy. And you may even be traveling for a while and have somebody back home or maybe someone who's traveling with you or whatever it might be. But if they've got access to the drive as well, they can see what you're doing. So it's also another way of just sharing the experience as it's happening or within hours of things happening by uploading photographs to um, to the cloud. But as I say, it, it depends where you are. You might have no worries at all getting onto the cloud, but I've certainly been to places where there's absolutely no access at all. Uh, in fact, sometimes there's no electricity either. <laughs> so they, those, um, those situations don't help very much. Okay, another thing to think about is ensuring your gear. So that's on, um, again, on the preparations. When you're going through paperwork, visas, making sure your passport has enough months left before it expires to let you in. But going through all of that stuff, just checking your insurance is a very good idea because a lot of standard travel insurance policies will not cover camera gear, certainly not expensive camera gear. So it's good to make sure that you've got a policy that covers you. If you travel a lot, you might get one of those 12-month insurance packages and just make sure it does have, um, well, the best terms you can get. I guess new fold is the best kind of replacement option on the camera. But again, it's another reason for backing up regularly as well. Should something happen or should you drop your camera and it breaks or you, you know, something happens to it, uh, you minimize your, your losses. Okay, um, obvious things, but um, really important things actually are to keep your lens clean. So you can, if if you're somewhere dusty, you may, you might not always be conscious of just how much muck is getting onto your lens. So I always use a neutral density filter on the front of my lenses. I know some photographers don't because there's a a very small loss of quality. I've never noticed it, if I'm honest. And the reason I do that is that if I should have an accident and scratch the lens. I've actually scratched the filter, not an expensive lens. So I've scratched something that might be 10 or 20 euros, whatever the cost of them is. I can't even remember now, to be perfectly honest. But I'd rather do that than scratch a lens on a 2,000 euro lens, um, you know, scratch the first element. So I do recommend doing that. And then, of course, make sure you keep them clean. So a, a um, a blower brush is a really good thing to have with you. Some cleaning fluid, microfiber cloth, that sort of thing, just to keep things as clean as possible. And I will always clean up my equipment when I get back from a shoot. That's one of the jobs I do while I'm um, uploading my photographs. I'll be cleaning the camera out, make sure that that's in good shape, ready for the next um, shoot. So that might be at 
you know, halfway point um, during the day. And then I've got some more photography to do in the afternoon or it might be at the end of the day. But I always make sure I don't finish with the camera until it's cleaned up, ready to go for the following day. The batteries are fresh or they're on charge and are charging um, so that by the time I come to use the camera, everything's ready to go. Now, I've mentioned that on my laptop, I have a copy of Photoshop, which is what I tend to use for editing. And if you are able to take a laptop with you or some a screen that's bigger than what you've got on the camera, that is definitely an advantage. Now, one advantage is obviously that you can do some editing. Most packages you could probably use on your um, laptop. Uh, so you can do editing on the move. But the other thing is it's nice to see a photograph on full screen and just see what it looks like on a much bigger screen than on the back of the camera because that will show you whether or not you got the result that you think you got because sometimes looking on the back of the camera on the LCD screen, the pictures can look pretty good, but then when you blow them up, when you get them much bigger, you realise certain things are out of focus. It's not quite as sharp as you thought. Um, there might be other things wrong with it. The lighting might not be as good. And some of those things you can correct. So things like lighting you can correct usually in post-processing. But it, it might be just too far gone. You, you can have the lighting so far out. And then we all make mistakes. We get a setting wrong or something goes wrong we haven't noticed. And we start producing photographs that are basically unusable. So if you, there is the opportunity to have a second go at it, have the, have, take the shot again, then it's definitely worth the time to just check what you've got on a bigger screen so it's much easier to see uh, how well the photograph has actually come out. Um, and as I say, I've had pictures that I thought were really good and, and then I've been very disappointed when I blew them up. So um, while you're there, you might as well check it and then you've got the chance to get another shot. If you're going to be doing landscapes it's worth it is worth thinking about panoramas particularly if you're doing a photo book and you want to do one of these lay flat books because they can be relatively large i like the lay flat format i find that the one i've used is from blurb but i found it quite expensive but um definitely a good blurb of very good quality i've got no worries with their um the quality of what they produce so you do want to make sure you've got a, a decent photograph to uh, use there Depending on your camera settings in your phone, most phones these days, maybe all of them, I don't know, but most ones I'm aware of, there is a panorama mode, which I think is really cool. So if you're just careful, and again, this is something to practice if you haven't used it before, but just pick your subject and sort of pivot while you're in uh, pano mode and have a look at the photographs because they can be really impressive. The other way to do a panorama on um, a DSLR or a mirrorless is to have it on a tripod and just keep taking a photograph, then pivot the camera slightly by a certain number of degrees, probably not more than um, about 90 degrees. There are, there are definite rules on this. I haven't done it for a while. Um, the reason that you don't do a full or almost a full frame each time, in fact, it would be less than 90 for sure. It's, it's just a matter of a few degrees, is that you want the, the edges of the lens is likely to be distorting the image. And most lenses will do that. If you're going wide angle, particularly, you're going to get a lot more distortion on the edges. So you really want to be keeping 
the area of the photograph that has the least distortion, ideally no distortion, but good luck with that, and um, just overlap on the, the undistorted parts of the image. So you're going to end up shooting a lot of images. Um, the other thing I do when I when I have done that, and I haven't done it for a while, as I've said, I'll stick the camera in um, portrait mode. So it's on its side, basically. So I'm sort of shooting portraits and then going across, going across, going across, going across. Because it gives me a much bigger image when I finally knitted everything together. Now, uh, things like Photoshop will do the knitting it all together for you. Again, though, it's good to practice because it doesn't always quite come out the way you expect. <laughs> so uh, um, that if you are thinking of doing that, you definitely want to um, uh, practice that and see how things come out in uh, in Photoshop. Now, if you really want to do it seriously, you can get a panorama tripod mount. And what it does... Uh, now, I forget the name of this, but there's actually a sweep point and it's not pivoting on the center of the camera, but it's pivoting off that central point on the camera. But if you pivot at that point, it minimizes distortion at a certain distance. So that all starts getting very complicated. So you'd really need to be into your panorama shots um, to get into that. But um, the simplest thing is to use your camera and just practice because it might, it might give you um, a good enough quality image to use for what you're planning to use the image for. Okay, um, I've spoken about the auto modes. Um, yeah, look, shoot a variety of subjects and formats. Um, that, as I said, might be shooting portrait where you would normally shoot landscape or vice versa. Get down low, try different lightings, different times of day. I think um, being patient is another good one. So if you've got a particular shot in mind, Again, depending on where you are and what the circumstances are, you might need to just spend some time in one place uh, to, before everything kind of comes together and you can get the shot. Uh, sometimes it's luck, and uh, I've certainly had my share of luck with uh, getting good shots, but some of it is engineered to a point. I, I've got a, a shot in mind, and I will try and get myself into a certain place at a certain time of day so that the odds are as much in my favour as I can make them. But there's also an element of luck um, with um, this with wildlife. But again, depending on where you are, the sun might be in a certain position where you get just great shadows, or the light might reflect off um, something, or you might get a reflection of water. All all these sorts of things, or it might be you want to get a, a picture of a bridge or something like that where the water is absolutely still, so you get these beautiful reflection shots. There's lots and lots of things you can do. So, um, yeah, get your shoot list together. Maybe you want to prioritise one or two shots that you really want to get and you're prepared to spend uh, maybe a few hours even to try and get them. So, uh, you know, think think about that. And then the final thing that I've jotted down here is just to um, have your subject interact with their environment. So if you're shooting a calendar or with friends or family, you, you will definitely want to get photographs with them in the environment doing whatever is appropriate for them to be doing in that environment. I think having people there, it's, it's nice, first of all, just as um, the kind of souvenir shot that shows them in that location and it's something that they'll treasure. So that might be uh, something you would have in the photo book that maybe something they would like for themselves as a screensaver or whatever on the wall somewhere. 
Secondly, you can use those shots to give context. So if your subject is not a family member, it might be a building, it might be um, an animal. So with a building, I'm thinking about the um, the great, the famous pyramids, the great pyramids at Giza, and often they're shot with the pyramids and then just desert behind them. But did you know <laughs> that they're actually really close to the city? You, if you go the other side, you've got city behind them. So, you know, photographers, since photography was invented, I guess prior to that, painting and drawing, have kind of been um, using a little bit of artistic license in flattering the subject, let's say, or producing a certain result that they are going for. I've got real estate agents going through my head as well, but anyway, we won't go there. Um, But when you actually go to a place, it might not be what you're expecting at all. So if you can capture some of that, that, that's really good. And going back to good old wildlife, uh, where I love to be, but uh, I love to try and get wide shots of um, animals occasionally. I've got one that I took of an elephant in South Africa and I did a really wide-angle shot of this elephant just coming out of some trees. And I just wanted to try and convey something of just the size of the area it was in. We all know an elephant's pretty big. And if you've been up close to one, you'll know for sure it's very big. But uh, this elephant looked really small. So it just gives you an idea of how impressive the landscape is. And I, I would say that shooting big landscapes is really difficult. I remember the first time I saw the Rift Valley when I was in Kenya and I just couldn't even imagine how I was going to shoot that and do any kind of justice at all and even savannah and places like that. So this is where panoramic shots can come in very handy because they certainly can take in a lot more. Um, when you're in those sort of environments and you may well be able to relate to this when you've been been somewhere where it's just big, the sky is big, the landscape is big, everything is really big and you feel just very insignificant being part of this incredible landscape. And then you ask yourself how you're going to possibly convey that feeling (laughs) through a photograph. So it's not easy, but um, technology is definitely uh, becoming more and more helpful these days. So there you go. Those were the tips that I had in mind. I hope they've given you some food for thought. I think the thing I always come back to, there's probably a couple of things actually, one I haven't spoken about. The first one is definitely know your camera. If you're really not sure, you only tend to use a certain part of your camera, just take some time before you go to just play with the other functions. You may well find that you don't need them after all, that, you know, they don't really add anything. On the other hand, you might find that they give you the option to shoot some really good effects. They might suddenly make it much easier to get certain results. So do explore what the camera will deliver for you, the camera that you have. And then the other thing I like to talk about, and I've done at least one podcast on this, and I've previously done some webinars on it, but that's to become a visual storyteller. And what I mean by that is to think about why you're taking a particular photograph. As you look through the viewfinder, as you look at the screen on the back of your camera, as you you look at the screen on your, your smartphone, What is inspiring you or prompting you to take this photograph? What is it you want to convey to the person who will be looking at that photograph, perhaps without you being there to explain anything about it? And the reason I suggest approaching your photography this way is that it makes you really look at what's in the viewfinder. So 
What's the best composition? Is rule of thirds really good for you? Or do you want to do something really different? Do you want a huge amount of foreground to get a feeling of space and distance? Or do you want to get a lot of um, background or a lot of height above your subject so that, again, to convey a feeling of space maybe, maybe showing that subject as being relatively insignificant, just have a think about it. They don't have to be long stories, um, but what's the story? What? How can you convey visually what's inspiring you emotionally in that moment to um, to take that photograph? So that's it for this podcast. And um, so I hope you find that interesting and uh, I hope that's got you thinking a bit more about your photography. You can always ask questions, um, my email is definitely on the um, podcast listing. And um, if you've got any questions or anything you'd like me to cover in a podcast, you're very welcome to let me know as well. Okay, so I hope you enjoy whatever you're doing and um, I'll speak to you on the next podcast. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcasts and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 